This morning we return to our study in John's first letter, or as we've described it a number of times, this written sermon, this written exhortation that John delivered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a very needy, a very um, uh, dependent uh, congregation of God's people, even as we cling to every word that God would speak to us today. Uh, Here this morning, we look together at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Uh, These verses are printed in your bulletin. They also can be found on page 1022 in the Pew Bible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The grass withers, the flowers of the field fade and fall, But this, God's word from 1 John chapter 3, endures forever. Won't you please join me in prayer? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, the church to whom John originally wrote this letter was filled with many needs, had many reasons why they required the encouragement of a word that would be given to them, directing their hearts and their minds to the great work of salvation that you had brought forth in Jesus Christ. Father, so too, as we gather here today, we find ourselves in need of encouragement and comfort. We need your word to come alongside us to stir our hearts, to grant us confidence in your presence, and ultimately to point us to the work of Jesus, our glorious and beautiful Savior. And so, Father, we pray today that your word, blessed by your Spirit, would touch each of us, drawing us closer and closer to Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Thus, Fanny Crosby in 1873. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Well, Miss Crosby was able to pen those words over a hundred years ago, speaking about the blessings of the assurance that she had that Jesus was hers, and that because of that, she was an heir of salvation. How about you this morning? 
in 2022? Are you able to say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Are you able to say with sincerity that indeed you are confident, confident over the great work of salvation that Jesus Christ has done for you? Well, as we've been studying together, 1 John, we have seen time after time that it is a portion of God's word that sets before us blessed assurance. And once again, as we turn our attention to these verses, verses 19 through 24 here in the third chapter, we find that the glorious theme of Christian assurance is once again taking center stage. Notice how this passage begins and how it ends. In verse 19, John says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. The issue of knowing, certainty, assurance. And once again, in verse 24, it ends in the very same fashion. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. This whole section raises once again before our hearts the reality of blessed assurance. The way in which we can know that we know Jesus Christ unto everlasting life. Now in the flow of 1 John... John is giving us this uh, little side track, this side trail, in the very midst of the second cycle of setting before us those evidences that those who are born of God will see in their lives that they truly belong to Christ. And what's so fascinating here is John once again focuses our hearts on the reality that this whole pursuit is such a blessing. This whole pursuit is so very worthwhile. And indeed, this pursuit of assurance is attainable. This is not something that that is just a a, a wild dream, a a figment of our imagination. It indeed is attainable for those who would cling to the path of assurance that is unfolded in the very word of God. And so John wants us to know that this call to seek assurance is indeed a tremendous blessing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Well, the passage breaks down, I believe, as I've indicated in the sermon outline in your bulletin, into three main ideas. And in the first idea that is found for us in verses 19 through 20, we find what we can call the pursuit of assurance. Uh, John here describes the reality that there are moments when perhaps assurance is far from us. And so he says here in these verses, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. If our hearts need to be reassured, then clearly there can become instances where our hearts lose a grasp upon certainty and confidence in God's presence. John is even more specific, isn't he, here in verse 20? For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And so here it's not only that our hearts lack assurance, but actually at certain moments our hearts can condemn us. And so John wants us to understand that there is a pursuit of assurance that sometimes involves struggling within our own hearts or with our own hearts. Now notice what John says here, whenever our heart condemns us. He's speaking very realistically here, isn't he? He is speaking very experientially and he's speaking very broadly. 
he's describing something that clearly he's not couching in terms of all kinds of qualifications, all kinds of specific circumstances. He just sets it before us as a reality, the kind of thing that we will always face and frequently face, no matter who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. This is a regular occurrence for all believers in the Lord. Now, this is so important just to understand that John is describing something here that is not far-fetched because so often when we're struggling in the Christian life, heaped on top of those struggles is the false sense that we are the only ones who have ever dealt with such issues. One of the things that I so frequently do in talking to folks who are struggling in their Christian lives is just remind them that they are not alone. That indeed everything that that is being faced by any given individual follower of Jesus Christ is something that at some point practically every believer has faced to one degree or another. Now that doesn't take away the struggle, but it does take away that added burden of thinking somehow I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's this weak. I'm the only one who's this foolish. I'm the only one who finds themselves in such a predicament as this. It's so important to know that John is speaking of a regular occurrence in the Christian life. He says sometimes our hearts will condemn us. Sometimes our hearts condemn us unjustifiably. Right? We know that Satan is the slanderer. Right? He, he's the one who likes to come and whisper in our ears that God has rejected us, that we've done wrong, that we've crossed a line that we can never retreat from. And so he likes to slander us. And sometimes our own hearts take hold of things and, and latch on to them and can condemn us unjustifiably. Our hearts may indeed be tender. Our consciences might be sensitive to certain things that may not even be wrong in God's sight. And so sometimes our hearts can condemn us unjustifiably. But perhaps more frequently, our hearts might be lacking rest. Our hearts might be speaking against us for good reason. Because in one way or another, we know that we have transgressed God's commandments. We know that we have rebelled against what God tells us we are to do to love him and love others. And we are disappointed in ourselves and our hearts in those moments can condemn us. After 22 years here at the church, uh, I'm pretty sure that I know every sound this big old building makes. And that's why I heard a sound this past week that caught my attention because it wasn't a sound I had ever heard before. It was very regular, although it wasn't mechanical, it wasn't absolutely regular, and it was persistent over a long period of time. And so finally, I just got up, I was like, I got to figure out what is making this noise. And so I made my way from the study here towards the auditorium. And in this corner window, there was a male cardinal that was continuously banging its head against the window. And in fact, it was doing it again this morning. It did it all week long. Now this is common male cardinal behavior in the spring. They see their reflection in window or in a glass and they think that this is, this is a competitor for their territory. And so they go and they try to drive the competitor away. Now, 
Again, maybe a little insight into the male psyche, I don't know, <laughs> right? But what this is, is an illustration for us many times in our Christian lives where we feel like we're banging our heads against the wall. And, and instead of learning, right, figuring things out, we go back and time after time after time, we do the same things, the same foolish, disobedient things. Right? And there are those moments when our hearts condemn us and with a certain measure of warrant and justification. But here John says, nonetheless, there is a pursuit of assurance. How can we have assurance in those moments when our hearts condemn us? How can we quiet our hearts when our hearts need to be reassured? Well, verse 19 begins by saying, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Now, there are many occasions in this epistle where John will say something, by this we know, and sometimes it's hard to know whether he's talking about what is coming up, what he is about to say, or whether he's actually referring back to what he has just written. Commentators, I think, are largely in agreement at this point that he's now talking about what it is that he has just addressed with us. So by this we shall know that we are of the truth. What is he speaking about? He's talking about what he has just told us in the previous verses about the way those who are born of God evidence love for others in the body of Christ. How do we gain that reassurance when our hearts condemn us? He's saying we look again to those evidences of the fingerprint of God upon our hearts and lives. We look to the reality of what God is supernaturally doing for us in the person of his son, enabling us within the spiritual community of the church to love others and to do so in a way that is clearly not born of, of any personality trait or of any, any kind of worldly motivation. It is born of God. It is produced by the very God who has loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die for us. And so John says, here's how you can regain that assurance when your heart is condemning you. Look to the things that God is doing in your life, most particularly that amazing work of enabling you to love others, even here at Cornerstone Church. It's a supernatural work. There's no explanation for it except for the fact that God has a hold on you and that you are of the truth, the truth that is found in Christ. And yet, interestingly enough here, John does not only want us to regain this assurance by looking to the fruit of salvation in our lives, but actually looking to the person of God himself. Verse 20, so whenever we find ourselves in these circumstances where our hearts might condemn us, not only are we to look to the love that is flowing forth from our lives, but we also remember this fact. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now, there is a way of taking this verse that may not seem very comforting at all. And in fact, interestingly enough, many of the reformers actually interpreted this verse something along the lines that if our hearts give us trouble at some, some points, think how much more trouble we are in God's sight because he knows us better than our own hearts and, and he's greater than our own hearts. And so if our hearts condemn us, how much more reason does God have to condemn us? I, I'm not sure how to, how to blend that in with John's theme of assurance here, though I certainly respect the sources of that interpretation. I think the idea is probably something like this. So God is indeed greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And the God who knows everything and is greater even than our hearts 
has received us in the person of his son and has welcomed us into his family by his amazing grace. And he knows where we are in our Christian lives even better than we ourselves know. Think about the pattern that John had established, talking about us as little children and young men and fathers, right? These stages of development, and God knows where I am in those stages. And God knows what it is that Jesus has come into the world to do, the the blood that cleanses us, and, and the advocacy that intercedes for us. And what does God know better even? Even than we know, God knows better even than we know his intentions for us and what he has done in our behalf, even making us new, born of his spirit, possessing of the anointing that guides us to Christ. God knows better than we know all that he's done for us. I think that's where the assurance comes, right? So, so when we're tempted to condemn ourselves, we say, wait a second. Why should I condemn myself when God, who knows me so intricately, from whom nothing can be hidden, this God in whom is light, there's no darkness at all, and yet in Jesus, in his Son, he has welcomed me. Who am I to assume that I don't have a place when God himself has said, you are my child and you do have a place at my side. God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. He has opened wide his arms to you. Don't turn aside from his embrace, the pursuit of assurance. But then here in the middle verses, we find the life of assurance. John starts off with a kind of axiom, a kind of truth here. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Um, John is saying, I think, that having applied these dual remedies looking for evidences of God subjectively in our lives, but then looking to the person of God objectively as great and gracious and knowing of our hearts. Having applied these remedies, he then speaks of a new condition for us, no longer condemned by our hearts, but rather those who have confidence before God because our hearts no longer speak against us. And and notice here how vividly John is describing this wonderful state of affairs. He says we have confidence before God. This is an echo of what he's already said in verse 19. We reassure our heart before him. Right, This whole reality of being in the presence of God. This whole reality that Christianity is not a game. It's not a philosophical enterprise that we walk on. It's not a kind of of word puzzle or mental puzzle. This is not something we do just because we're looking to fill some time. The, the, The reality of what our faith is about, that in Christ we are before the face of God. Wasn't this John Calvin's motto, Coram Deo, before the face of God? That's who we are. And John says, if we apply these remedies, now we can live out the life of assurance. Our hearts will no longer condemn us before God. As Christians, as we grow because of God's work, we come to doubt our doubts, you see. Right? We come to set aside those things that make us think that God would set us aside. We doubt our doubts as we have this renewed confidence according to the truth of God's word. Now, notice here that this life of assurance has a particular manifestation described in verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. So the manifestation of this life of assurance comes by living out a life 
of bold and confident prayer. This life is marked by a boldness of prayer that is linked, as John is going to tell us, to pleasing God in accordance with his commands. And just as a side note, we might then ask ourselves if perhaps our struggles with prayer, um, among many other reasons why we might struggle, are perhaps related to the fact that on some level we have uh, a lacking of assurance that we're wondering if God really does want us to ask and seek and knock. We're wondering if, in fact, God really does long to give us good gifts like a father longs to give gifts to his children. Perhaps our prayerlessness at times stems from the fact, among other things, that we are lacking this assurance. But notice what John says about this, this prayer that characterizes the life of assurance. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, this is one of many such statements in the Bible that say, hey, if you ask for it from God, he'll give it to you. And of course, we immediately have all kinds of questions and maybe even some particular uh, prayer requests suddenly pop into our minds. Say, boy, you know, (laughs) I've got a lot of things on a laundry list that I would love to ask God for. And if here I'm being told, if I ask for it, I'm going to receive it. Boy, I'm going to really offer up uh, those kinds of requests to God. But we need to understand that this call to ask in the confidence that comes that we will receive is qualified, for example, as we find here later on in this very epistle, the 14th verse of chapter 5. There John writes, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So there is a real confidence here that comes from saying, hey, You know, if I ask it, God will give it. But at the same time, there is this clear recognition that the things we're asking for that he promises to give are those things that are associated with his will, what he has made known that he delights to give to his children. So it's not then surprising that John links prayer to the keeping of God's commandments. Notice what he says here, verse 22, we will ask Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So there's a connection between asking, receiving, and keeping. And then verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Now it's interesting, John here speaks about a singular commandment which he then gives to us in two distinct parts. He says there is a commandment, and it has two parts, believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, and love one another. And these two parts come together, in a sense, as a singular commandment. We don't get to divide up the Christian life and say, well, I I like keeping this part of the Christian life faithfully, but other parts I set aside. No, it is a whole Right? It, it, is, it is of one piece of cloth that we don't get to pick and choose. But God, uh, John says here then is the commandment that we are to keep. We are to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ. We are to believe in terms of our understanding. And you think about all the amazing things that John has shown us already to this point that we are to understand about the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's son. 
that he is the one who is pure, so that we would purify ourselves as he is pure, that he is the one in whom there is no sin, that he is the one who has come into the world to take away our sin, that he was the one who has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil, that he is the one whose blood cleanses us, he is the one whose advocacy the Father heeds in our behalf, he is the one who will come again, so that when he comes again, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him in that seeing. We will know him as he is. All the amazing things that John has already told us about the person and work of the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, our glorious Redeemer. But of course, when he says believe in him, it's not only that we are to understand these things with our minds, we take hold of him. And it's because we take hold of him that we are able, for example, to express our sin and acknowledge our guilt because we understand that through the Savior's blood, God will not turn us away. He will not cast us aside. He will not abandon us. We believe that through the work of Jesus, we have a place with God both now and forever. So he says, here's what you need to do. You have a life of assurance. That assurance shows itself in prayer. You ask and you receive. But that asking and receiving is connected with the command to believe in Jesus. Also connected with the command, not surprisingly, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Right? This is a part of the gospel. John says, from the very beginning, you heard that it has been said and taught that this is how Christians behave. That they love those whom Jesus has loved at great sacrifice to himself. So see what John is doing here. He's not saying that when we obey and keep God's commandments, this compels God to give us what we want. That's not the point. But what he's saying is when our hearts are utterly fixated on this singular command in two parts, believing in Jesus and loving others, when that becomes the marching orders of our lives, when our hearts are focused on these priorities, then of course when it comes to asking God for things, we're going to ask for those things that are in keeping with those commandments. We're going to prioritize. Right? We're going to prioritize what it is to believe in Jesus. We're going to prioritize in our prayers what it is to love one another even when it's hard and we don't want to. Right? When, when these commandments, when this commandment in two parts becomes the focus of our being, then inevitably we will ask for the things God delights to give, the very things that God promises to give, the very things we need God to give, that we might fixate in all things upon the work of his Son and our responsibility to love one another according to his power within the church. So notice once again, John has done something here very important. He, he has spoken both about a subjective evidence, loving our neighbors, but also an objective reality, the work of Jesus. So now we've seen the work of the Father in attaining blessed assurance. We've seen the work of Jesus in attaining blessed assurance. Maybe, maybe there's one more important step here. We find that indeed in verse 24, where we find the spirit of assurance. And this being spirit with a capital S. John says, whoever keeps his commandments abide in God and, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 
This is beautiful language, isn't it? The beginning of this 24th verse. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Now, John has repeatedly talked and called upon us to abide in God, to abide in Christ. And he's talked about God's word abiding in us and God abiding in us as well. And, and yet this is the very first time, so that I, as far as I'm aware, where both of these realities are, are brought together in a single place. Right? This, this mutual abiding, this, this kind of mutual entanglement between God and his people. That God is in us, we are in God, God is fellowshipping with us, we are fellowshipping with him. There's this kind of mutuality here that is really beautiful, really intimate and glorious. Um, you, you'll understand that this is a light-hearted analogy and surely one that has inadequacy attached to it, but something struck me this past week of a similar vein. Um, today is, of course, beautiful and warm. Uh, much of the week has not been quite so warm, and I was at Eastridge High School watching a baseball game on one of the not-so-warm afternoons this past week, and uh, it was rainy and cloudy and windy, and uh, I was standing up on the bleachers because those bleachers are made out of metal, and it's to sit on those would just have made cold just course through my being. And so I'm standing at the bleachers, and, and down at field level, there was a grandmother with a grandson. And uh, the grandson got cold, the grandmother got cold, and so at one point the grandson just goes there on her lap, and uh, they had a blanket, and so they put that blanket around them, and they were all entangled up there, cuddled up together on that chair. And it became very apparent to me that that was the case, when at one point a foul ball went in, in, in the territory where we were, and the blanket came off because the little boy wanted to go chase that foul ball. But in order to do so, there had to be all kinds of disentangling going on. All the limbs were all wrapped up together as they were under the blanket cuddling. Now, again, that's a lighthearted analogy here, and we don't want to make too much of it. But think about this. God in us, we are in God. God abiding in us, we are abiding in him. This kind of mutual entanglement between God and the lives of those who call upon his name that John is speaking about here. Right where it comes a point where it's hard even to disassociate ourselves from God. It comes hard to disentangle ourselves from God. We are all bound up together with him who has loved us so dearly and who will spend eternity walking with his people. We're all entangled with our God. But, but notice here that John tells us that this closeness is promoted and strengthened by the keeping of his commandments. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And so there's an association between this closeness and holding on to God's commands. Now, that's really important, isn't it? Because even as we draw very near to our God at his own invitation, we understand that we never become his peers. God is God and we are not. And in terms of giving of the commandments, that only flows in one direction. But once again, we need to understand here that John is not telling us to keep the commandments in order to purchase God's affection. But rather, in a relationship of affection, we need to abide in God's commands in order to show that he has first place in our lives. It's a beautiful thing about Jesus that he will never take second place. Jesus, being who he says he is, can't take second place. Otherwise, he'd no longer be who he says he is if he'd be willing to be relegated to be the caboose of the train of your life. 
He must be first or he is nothing. And that's what John is saying here. If you would be close to him, you can't expect to experience that closeness if you are constantly looking him in the face and defying him. That is not the way to breed familiarity and intimacy with the one who is your father, the one who is your king, the one who is your Lord, the one who is your God. And so it is that that closeness is, is promoted and grown and strengthened by keeping God's commandments, knowing that in doing so, we're pleasing him. Isn't that wonderful? The language that John uses, not this is a burden. We're pleasing the heart of God when we do the things that he commands. And in that pleasure, God welcomes us nearer and nearer to himself. But then we realize that this closeness is not only promoted by keeping his commands, but this closeness is confirmed by the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given. And now it comes full circle, this beautiful Trinitarian passage of blessed assurance. Right? God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, right, by whom we know through his manifest presence that God abides in us. The Spirit, of course, cannot be seen. But as Jesus has told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he always makes his presence known by the manifestations of his power. Just like you can't see the wind, but you know where it blows, so too the Spirit comes and you know that he's drawn near by the manifest evidences that God in his Holy Spirit has drawn close. And John has pointed us to these glorious realities. That it is by the Spirit that we are born anew. We have this new principle of life within us. It is by the Holy Spirit that we've received the anointing. right? Not the act, but the, 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 the mode by which we have received this knowledge of Jesus Christ, even the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit is manifest in our lives, pointing us to Jesus, enabling us to cling to him no matter what we face in our lives. Blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But as John has pointed us here to the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit, that's why Fanny Crosby ended that great hymn as she did. With that wonderful chorus, having sung of blessed assurance, how does the chorus go? This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Blessed assurance praises our Savior because our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one to whom we look that this assurance might be our possession both now and and throughout all the days of our lives. Please join me in prayer. And Father, we would ask today that you would grant us this blessed assurance, this assurance that comes on one hand because we see you working in our lives, but Father, that assurance that comes ultimately because we fix our gaze upon you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we know you, we trust you, And we understand the great things you've done for our sake. 
May our assurance, O God, rather than being selfish or arrogant or presumptuous, may our assurance lead us to praise you all the day long. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song this morning is found in your bulletin. And won't you please join me in standing as we sing together, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.
And for all those who know in their hearts that our only hope is in Jesus, this blessing is pronounced for your encouragement today. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship and communion of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Thank you.